Remember those words that we just sang, we'll circle back to those uh, just in First Peter. You'll see that, that we die to self, find life in Jesus, we live for him, firm in him. And we do so as we trust in him that we may not be shaken. Just kind of remember that. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Imagine we're hanging out for a little bit, and we're going to spend some time together, and somewhere as we're hanging out, I look at you and say, man, I love my wife. Amen. Right? It's good. And some time goes by, and we're still talking, and then a little bit later, I say, man, I love Diet Dr. Pepper. How do you process those two things? Think about that for just a second. That, that's common. We do that all the time, right? We, we, we use this term love, and we recognize that there is a deeper, more true definition. And then there is something that's much more shallow that's just kind of like, oh, he likes that. And upon hearing that, you, without me even saying anything, you contextually kind of categorize what I'm saying into the deeper truth or the more shallow truth. Ask a seven-year-old, what is love? And listen to them as they talk. And then ask a 70-year-old, what is love? And listen to them talk. We don't do this with humility. We probably should. We don't categorically kind of compartmentalize a deeper definition of humility and a shallow definition of humility. And I think the reason for that is more times than not, we've just all accepted the shallow definition and very rarely do we look to something deeper, something more, something that would have us think beyond our kind of childlike instincts, the cultural instincts that are around us. And if our pursuit of humility as a church is to grow, we're going to have to think a little bit more deeply about it. Otherwise, I will spend this morning in the Word saying humility, to be humble, and what you will hear are just practices of a shallow definition. But the type of humility that can change your life will be missed because we hold the shallow definition. So I'm just going to ask you, be patient with me this morning. We're going to have a longer setup because it's going to be really important that we get our mind, our thoughts around humility at a deeper level and that we don't just come at it kind of in reaction through a cultural lens that will be honestly probably instinctive for most of us. Peter's writing to us and at the end of chapter 4 verse 19 he says therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then last week we turned the page into chapter 5 and 
Peter spoke specifically to the elders and he charged them to be an example. Be an example. Your leaders lead by being an example. But now in verse 5, he shifts his attention back to all of you. He's writing back to all of us again. And in verse 5, midway through, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's our big truth this morning. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter points these elect exiles back to this big truth. It is an old big truth. They would be familiar with it. It's anchored all the way back into Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, toward the scorner he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. James writes this same thing in James chapter 4. You'll see great parallels in James 4 and where we're at today in 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud. You don't want to be opposed by God. God opposes the proud and gives grace, gifts you do not deserve to the humble. Such a truth has so many implications. We're going to get to see three right here in our text in 1 Peter 5. But before we kind of dive into those again, let's define some terms, some concepts. As we were approaching, you know, this text, our teaching teams kind of huddled around and I was like, guys, talking about humility in 1 Peter 5, I got this. I am one humble dude, right? Now you all laugh. Why you laugh? How do you know I'm joking when I say it? I mean, I am. But how do you know? I mean, think about this for just a second. Is it impossible for humility to bring attention to humility? In our shallow social construct, Yes, but is it in the Bible? Is it in reality? See, again, there's not too many biblical concepts more misrepresented than humility. See, we, the church, have so long accepted a shallow definition of humility that it is even rare to hear anything different than that shallow concept. But church, humility is life-changing. Humility is church-changing. We've dumbed it down to some cultural self-suppression, some cultural politeness or thoughtfulness. Is not humility something more than our socially constructed self-suppression? I want you to think about that. Don't just... Hear me say it. Isn't there something more to it than that? Isn't love something more than I love Diet Dr. Pepper? See, in our definition, in this kind of social, this cultural definition that we accept, we say things like, well, humble people don't talk about themselves. Right? 
But I don't know if you've read the Gospels. Jesus talked about himself a lot. You say, well, he's Jesus. He, he can. He's God. He is. But I want you to know something. He's also our example of humility. Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient is the word Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Read back through your Gospels and be reminded how Jesus, the Son of God, submitted his will, his desire to the Father again and again. He talked about himself. He said, well, again, that's Jesus. All right, well, read most of your New Testament epistles, those written by Paul, and you're going to find out something. Paul talks about himself a lot. That's a problem, isn't it, for our definition of humility? Wait, wait a minute. Sometimes we say, well, you know humble people when you see them, when you hear them. Like, it's one of those deals. You, you recognize it when you're around it. Take those same two examples. Jesus was accused of being blasphemous for how he spoke of himself. They didn't recognize it. You say, well, again, that's Jesus. Okay, Paul, same thing. Paul is accused of boasting in himself, of being harsh throughout the New Testament. See, our definition of humility is nearly inseparable from the culture, so much so we have a problem when we look back into the scriptures and we would even see examples that it's hard for us to even connect with them because they do things that we have declared are not very humble. It shouldn't be this way. See, the church is best equipped to rightly define humility. Not the world, the church. Why? Because humility cannot be defined apart from self-awareness. And where does absolute awareness come from? The creator. And the church knows him. Worships him reads his word, takes truth from his revelation. You think that that's just some like isolated thought. Think about the definition of humility. Webster, right? So Webster's Dictionary, we're going to call that an authority on definition, right? So just a cultural understanding of what the word humility says or means. It's this. Freedom from pride or arrogance. I want you to notice something. Again, just a cultural definition. Notice that humility is defined by its opposite. It, it's defined by what it is not. Imagine your kids come up to you and say, Hey, Dad, what's the sky? And you said, not the ground. I mean, it's kind of a true answer, right? 
It's a pretty shallow answer. Humility is freedom from pride or arrogance. Why does it get defined that way? If you look at most things in your dictionary, they're going to be defined by what they are, not what they're not. Why? Because true humility is a response to something or someone greater than my will. And the world struggles with that. Because what is greater than my will if I have no creator? If there is no God? What is greater than my interpretation, my desire? But as Jesus followers, we know the answer to that. It is the will of the Father, the will of God. And our faith in Jesus proclaims he is supreme, he is God, he is creator, and I am his. I belong to him. I am under him. I am his creation. And so humility for the Jesus follower is rooted in worship. Humility is a root expression of worship. See, we've reduced it to something else, something less. A thought that might be parallel that just may stick in your mind. You've heard us say things like, well, we've taken God out of school, right? We say things like that. Listen, we've taken God out of humility. We've reduced it to this cultural expression of thoughtfulness. And that's sneaky dangerous. Like sneaky. Kids, any, any kids in the room, just sneaky? That's sneaky dangerous. You know why? Because there's nothing wrong with being thoughtful. There's nothing wrong with being polite. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't isn't that humility? The problem, though, is our thoughtful actions can and often are disconnected from worship. Meaning, we might have a good sacrifice, but to the wrong God. We've made our practice the principle. Let me try to give you examples so you can again see the disconnect. We describe humility around shallow practices such as things like speak when spoken to. Again, Jesus and Paul didn't do that. We say things like listen more than you talk. Jesus and the apostles, they didn't do that. By the way, you ever think about how hard that would be? Two people sit down in a conversation and they just stare at each other, both determined to be humble. I can't talk more than you. You can't talk more than me. And they're just staring and they start giving weird. I mean, it doesn't even make sense if you really begin to think about it. Are there principles there? Yes, they are. Those practices are good practices. Listen, we don't judge or rebuke others. I'm not talking about in isolation or our own authority, but as ambassadors of Christ. By the way, Jesus and the apostles, they did.
even the simple things, you know. He humbled himself and he cleaned up the mess. Our deacons in Acts 6 appointed so that the elders could focus their attention on prayer, teaching the word. Were these people humble? These people that we read about in our New Testament, were they not humble? Of course. Of course they were. They pursued it. They grew in it. They're examples to us because they met our shallow social definition. No. But because true humility is inseparable from worship. Because true humility exalts God. Listen, humility always exalts. Why? Because pride always exalts. True humility exalts the creator. Pride exalts the creation. I can turn the exaltation from one form of creation to another form of creation, it's still pride. What are you saying? If I'm like, I'm going to deflect, I'm going to be, you know, socially humble, and I'm not going to take credit, I'm not going to put worth or value or whatever on those things on myself, but instead I'm going to put it on someone else. Listen, watch what's happening. There's a part in that. It's good. Remember, it's why it's sneaky. But there's a part in that that is pride. Here's why. I am still taking what rightly belongs to the creator, and I am just transfer or transferring it from creation to creation. You understand? I am robbing the worship that is due, the one true God, and I am putting it on something lesser True humility exalts God. True pride exalts self directly in raising self up in the way we tend to think of pride and also indirectly in that we lower God. We lower the master. How? By raising up the creation. By raising up the servant. He is God. He is supreme. He is the master I am his. I am the creation. I am his servant. I belong to him. Let me try to give you an example that you can see from scripture before we kind of jump into our passage. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. You're going to see some themes that are going to cross into this section in 1 Peter as we talk about humility. If your brother sins... Rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's an important word. You're going to see this connection between faith and humility throughout the text today. It's a really important thing. It's the reason we're taking all this time to set it up. Because if we just come at humility with a shallow interpretation, you will not see faith as the source of growth and humility. You'll look for something more shallow in the practice. 
but not the root. And so the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline at the table? Or will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus gives a parallel. He says, The master has a servant. And that day, the servant is owned by the master. says the servant's been out in the field working in the sun like this week. It's been hot. Tough day, right? Well, sun's going down. It's dinner time. Does the master say to the servant, hey, you've had a really hard day. It's been hot outside. Go relax. Go get you something to eat. And the disciples are, of course, like, no, you wouldn't say that. Why? What would you say? Because I'm hungry. Go dress, get ready, and fix me something to eat. And by the way, after I eat, then you can go eat. That's the parable. So why are you sharing this with me? Because if your lens is the cultural definition of humility, you're going to get exposed right here in Luke 17. Two ways. First, you preach forgiveness, but you do not rebuke. Verse 3. You don't rebuke because you think it's arrogant and it's prideful. And who are you to say such a thing? And so if I look at your life, and yeah, there's this constant pursuit to forgive, but your brother who sins, you don't ever say anything? Man, it's kind of exposing. Let me give you another one. If you sympathize with the servant... Man, that poor guy, he's been outside. It's hot. He's worked for the master this whole time. If you sympathize for the servant, here's what's happening. You want to exalt your peers, the creation, not the master, the creator. You begin to feel these disconnects with this understanding of humility. What's my point? Biblical humility isn't what we think it is. There's more to it. And if so, pride isn't limited to the arrogance in which we compartmentalize it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his uh, eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Three big ideas, three implications because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. First, be humble. I like this one. This one keeps it really simple. You ready? God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. What should I do? Be humble. I like that. That's my kind of simplicity, right? So be humble, Peter writes. Humble yourselves. In other words, recognize who God is and who you are in light of him. Submit yourself to him and worship with your life. Die to self. Live as a living sacrifice. Anything that prevents us from doing so, this is pride. It is the opposite of humility. And this gets introduced in something that we don't think so much of as pride. Worry and anxiety is pride. It is at odds with humility. Church, listen. Insecurity, anxiety is probably the most rooted expression of pride in our church. You cannot be humble and be captive to insecurity and anxiety. Why? It practically denies the care of the sovereign God. And second, it exalts self as the subject and lowers God as the subject. It prioritizes my understanding, my feels. It prioritizes my control, my actions, my ambition, my goals, my timing. And so Peter says, humble yourselves, which is the opposite of worry, and he gives this application, casting all your anxieties on him, in verse 7. It's the application. Turn over your anxieties, your worries, for what's going to happen to you now in this life, in these circumstances. And if you're like me, you're probably going, but wait a minute. What about my, and fill in the blank, what about my family? What about my spouse? What about my kids? What about my health? What about my job? You want to know, I mean, we honestly don't even think too much about those things until we have to. Most of the time, if we're honest in our life, the things that we're wrestling with, we're anxious about, they're not even that big. They're more along the lines of things like, you know, our fun, our self-care, our hobbies, our happiness, our feelings. Why would we hand all of that over? Let me give you three reasons right here in the text. One, because he cares for you. He cares for you, and his cares are better than your cares. He cares for you more than you can understand, more than you can comprehend, more than you fathom. He cares for you. Second, 
because you are under his mighty hand. Similar language that goes back into Exodus and looks at God's relationship with Israel. Their suffering as they were captive in Egypt and God's sovereignty and his deliverance and his rescue as he takes them out. And throughout, there is the mighty hand of God, a God who is sovereign, a God who is in control, a God who is greater than any superpower of the world. In other words, our living hope, Peter says, is secure in him. Third, because he's promised to give grace to the humble at the proper time, Peter writes. It means in the last time. At the end times. What happens then? Peter says, he, God, will exalt you. He will exalt you. You will not exalt yourself. For left to yourself, there is nothing to be exalted. But dead to self and alive in Jesus, identifying with him, you will be exalted. You want to be exalted in this world? You want your best life now? You're on your own. But to identify with Jesus, to suffer with him in this world, is to be exalted with him in his kingdom. To be joint heirs with him. If you've been here week over week, you're seeing this theme build throughout 1 Peter. But it's throughout your New Testament. Remember in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He said in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? That's exalt, right? And forfeits his soul. And by the way, I mean, think about it. You don't have a mighty hand. Your grip is weak sauce. In other words, what can you control anyway? That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And then he described them, the anxious, you of little faith. This similar faith discussion back to Luke 17, back here into 1 Peter 5. Why? Because their failure to humble themselves was not because they thought too high of themselves. They did, but listen, that was secondary. It was that they thought too low of God. That's primary. Hence the solution throughout Scripture, faith in Him, in His strong hand, in His timing, in His care. Faith in Him, the Creator. See, if we hold a shallow view of humility, we hold a narrow view of pride. You'll struggle to see faith as the solution deeper understanding of who God is as the solution. 
And instead, you'll just chase little shallow practices along the way. Let me chase a rabbit real quick. Biblical markers of pride. Let me just give you the one we all focus on is arrogance. It doesn't exalt God, right? It elevates you. Let me give you a few more that you see through Scripture. Insecurity. It doesn't exalt God. It lowers you. Anxiety, worry, doesn't exalt God, it prioritizes you. Offense, you see those people, you know, we know those people were always easily offended. Doesn't exalt God, it entitles you. The woundedness, doesn't exalt God, it justifies you. The laziness, the undisciplined pursuit, doesn't exalt God, it empowers you. The lack of conviction, it does not exalt God, it just centers you. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Second big idea, the next two are quick. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, so be watchful, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Danger isn't just out there somewhere. Do you hear me? Church, listen. Danger isn't just out there. You know, like, you might stumble into it. You have an enemy, and that enemy is hunting you, stalking you. He is purposed to destroy you for his desire. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. In other words, be alert. Be focused. Be undivided in your attention. Set aside anything that might impair your ability to discern and act. What's the connection back here to this kind of humility theme that's running through this section? The humble lays down their desires to be on guard. Listen, distractions, they come naturally. I mean, you don't ever have to teach your kids, hey kids, I want you to be distracted, okay? Never! Never, like I say a thousand times, focus, focus all the time. By the way, we're adults. We're saying that to each other, right? Focus, why? Because what is natural to us is to be distracted by something lesser. Pride tempts us to delay, to compromise, to settle with our time, with our money, with our talents, with our gifts, with our friendships, with our family, to excuse ourselves for our own will, for our own desire, as if we are our own, but we are not. We've been bought with the price. We belong to the Creator. And if you are humble, you know that you are in a battle that is bigger than you, That the enemy is powerful and so you are at work, alert, undivided, watchful. Third, what's that practically mean? Be firm, 
Listen to verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being exposed by your brotherhood throughout the world. I said exposed. Experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Be firm. What's that mean? It means stand resolved, anchors down, firm. It means strong, uncompromising. Uh, the, the same word gets... Uh, translated strong in Hebrews 5 when it's talking about the mature eat solid meat, strong meat. It means tough. Be resolved in the truth. See, what are you getting at? Listen, humility isn't passive. The church needs to hear this. Humility isn't lacking conviction. Humility is strong. Humility is the oil that allows the relationships of the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Shriner wrote that in the commentary that we kind of recommend through 1 Peter. But it's not because everyone just sets down their convictions. And that what the, that's what the world says, right? Just affirm anything and everything. What happens in the church? The church is firm, unrelenting, uncompromising in its goal to exalt the one true God with every breath that would come out of its mouth, every muscle that would be sprung into action. See, one of the greatest slandering persecutions that is constantly at work in the church is the insecure, the offended, the anxious people who are captive to pride, slandering the faithful and the bold believers who humbly rebuke them. You know when this does not happen? When exalting God is our focus and not one another. When the creator becomes the focus and not the creation. And so as the team comes up, consider verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him... Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your son. He is our example of humility. Who laid down his life His desires, his comfort, 
for your will. Father, may we, the church, wrestle with such an understanding of humility. May we see beyond simple self-suppression. And instead, may our heart turn to faith. May we be humbled by the reality of who you are. You are God. You are supreme. You are master. We are your creation. We belong to you. We exist for you. And so, Lord, with every voice, with every action, may we be quick to lay down our life, not for some social validation, not for some simple thoughtfulness, politeness, but, Father, may we exalt you May we purposefully make much of you with our lives. Give us this heart. And Father, if there's one here who does not know you, does not know your son Jesus, Lord, I pray that as we sing and as the reality of the gospel is heard that Christ laid down his life, that through faith in him, we might identify with him and have life. Lord, I pray that you, in the power of your spirit, would do only what you can. That today would be the day that they would die to self in repentance, turn to you in saving faith, and live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.